All right. Welcome back. Here we are in Acts chapter 14. The book of Acts has multiple purposes. Um, It shows how the church became the church. That's really an important bit of information. How the new covenant dramatically shifts God's redemptive plan from one nation, Israel, which was a beacon to the world. That was what it was supposed to be. And it shifts to a global entity bringing God's grace to the ends of the earth. So that's a it's telling that story. It also tells the important history of the church's growth carefully showing the advance from Jerusalem and ultimately at the end of the book of Acts will end up in Rome and all kinds of places in between there. It also lays down absolutely essential doctrines in story form. Most of the New Testament gives us doctrine in letters but the book of Acts includes a lot of theology and the sermons and things like that. in the form of the stories and the preaching that goes on there. And also the book of Acts tells us about the structure of the church and that's going to relate to our text today somewhat. There's no church manual in the New Testament as in a lot of areas of theology and what we call practical theology. You have to look at a lot of different texts in various places to assemble an overall look at how we do church. So that's always important. So there's not one place that tells us everything. Of course the pastoral epistles are really helpful. Those are written to pastors of Timothy and Titus um, about their ministries. But those are letters and uh, they're for specific men in specific situations. So while they're helpful they're not exhaustive. There, there is no manual like I said. This by the way is one reason there are differences in how different churches operate. Some lean really heavily on just a few texts but the best thing to do in all areas of theology whether it's theology proper or getting into practical theology is to study and weigh carefully every text on any given topic and and, uh, seek the truth in all of its variety and the different facets of it. Because you want to be faithful to all of them so that's what we try to do. Um, the other reasons churches can be very different is uh, tradition which is always very powerful and just a philosophy of ministry and that's, that's important too to think through those things. So theology is what we believe. Practical theology is how we do things in the church. Both are really important and the book of Acts gives us both. So there's theology in the sermons and in the church decisions that are made and there's practical theology just woven into the stories of the church in Jerusalem and on the mission field. So as we come to chapter 14 we're going to see both theology in the preaching and practical theology in these missionary stories. And along uh, with that there's a pretty entertaining story in the city of Lystra that we're going to get to. So you remember last time Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Antioch after planting a successful church work there which was already reaching into the countryside in that area and they got kicked out. But they didn't go home. They didn't wail about it. Oh we failed. No, no they didn't do that. They followed the Roman road just down to the next key town which is called Iconium. And just like Antioch that was the most important city Iconium in the Roman province of uh, just like Antioch was the most important city in uh, Pisidia Iconium is the main city in a region called Lycaonia in the province of Galatia. 
So again we're going to see the synagogues and cities strategy because the first thing Paul and Barnabas do is they go straight to the synagogue. So let's look at Roman, I mean Acts chapter 14 verse 1. In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Gentiles. So the gospel went over very well there and it's a mixed congregation again Jews and God fearers Gentiles who worship the living God of the Bible. The response is great a large number and although Luke said many were interested after Paul preached in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch he did not use the expression large number for that event that we saw last time but here he does in fact Luke's expression Paulus Pletesos implies a large number. In fact that's what the Bible usually says when it's talking about a multitude. So it was a, a very large number of people put their faith in Christ in this city. So it's pretty exciting. Um, but Luke's purpose here is different. He, he doesn't give us the message that Paul gave. It would have been very similar to the message we saw in chapter 13. But Luke wants us to see how difficult this work is, this missionary work, and, and the pressure that was put on the first saints. As in Pisidian Antioch, last time we saw, uh, trouble begins here right away as well. Verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. So that word unbelieving it's mostly translated that way it's actually the word disobedient and if you don't respond to the call of the gospel you're being disobedient right so that's the word that Luke uses here God's message of salvation is presented to you and you're invited to respond to it if you disobey you don't believe you turn away from it. So sometimes the scripture uses disobey for unbelief even the gospel of John does that because it is a form of disobedience to ignore what God is telling you to the, in the gospel and offering you salvation. Now another part of the missionary life is slander. In fact that's often the biggest problem that missionaries face. The local powers that be as we saw in Antioch acting out of jealousy for these new rivals or seeing it as a competitive situation they do whatever they can to cause trouble and the easiest way to cause trouble is to make up things about the missionaries. So here the Jews that didn't believe the gospel rile up the Gentiles in the community uh, the, the larger portion of the population and they try to get them to see these Christians as troublemakers. So they create salacious stories to malign the missionaries ascribing to them evil motives or wild stories about what they do. You know way back when Hudson Taylor one of the great missionaries in all of history uh, the man who really opened up interior China to the gospel more than anybody else they still honor and remember him there in China today for that. When he came to Yang Chao he uh, had really good results but there was some opposition rising just like here there's always some opposition. But it wasn't really a problem until, until they came. Well who were they? Well if you know about Hudson Taylor you know that he wore Chinese clothing and he adopted Chinese customs. Anything that wasn't pagan that he could do he would do to adapt, adopt himself to their culture. But one day he was visited in Yangchow by two foreign missionaries wearing western clothes. So the opponents of the faith started passing out flyers saying that dozens of children have gone missing and they've been eaten by these uh, foreign devil kind of people you know. So they just made that up. But uh, sometimes efforts 
are made up to whip up a crowd to, to kill the missionaries and that's really what was going on there in Yangchow. It almost worked. Uh, they actually destroyed the, the Hudson Taylor's home and almost got his family. So it was as the British say a close run thing but uh, they did survive and God protected them. But that sort of thing is not uncommon in missions. Uh, slanders against the new people or the new idea and if you attack the people and say that they're evil it's easier to get rid of the new idea. So at this point in Iconium it's all been just talk. Uh, They were not under direct physical threat as happened in Pisidian Antioch. So they stayed and Luke says in verse 3 they stayed a long time. So look at verse 3 it says therefore they spent a long time there boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be performed at their hands. So a long time, that's at least several months, enough time to do a lot of teaching and maturing the saints there. And Luke gives us a really wonderful summary here in verse three of the apostles' work. They spoke boldly, we talked about that last time. They were depending upon the Lord and the Lord was active, testifying to his own grace. So salvation is of grace, right? We we can't do anything to earn our salvation. It's a free gift to all who believe. That's theology and so that's a testimony to the theology that they were teaching. And there were miracles done there as well. Miracles confirm apostolic authority. But miracles do not prevent rejection and opposition. You might think they would. Well these guys do miracles. They must be telling the truth. But that's not how it works. Satan is actively opposed to the gospel. Human nature is actively opposed to the gospel apart from God's grace. So um, it's not surprising that there would be enemies. So the gospel took root there but the enemies of the gospel just like at Pisidian Antioch finally managed to get things to kind of a fever pitch and the city's leaders decided to allow violence against Paul and Barnabas. So verse 4 it says the people of the city were divided some sided with the Jews while others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region and there they continued to preach the gospel. So then as now um, gospel work can be very dangerous but that is why we exist so danger just has to be ignored or dealt with in a bold way uh, because we have a calling to take the gospel to the world. In fact when that incident happened to Hudson Taylor and Yang Chao um, his wife wrote in a letter let me just read part of it for you she said our God has brought us through may it be to live henceforth more fully to his praise and glory. We have had another typhoon so to speak not as prolonged as the literal one nearly two years ago but at least equally dangerous to our lives and more terrible while it lasted. I believe God will bring his own glory out of this experience and I hope it will tend to the furtherance of the gospel. And she signs it yours in a present savior. He was saving them right then from death. So boldness, depending on the Lord, furthering the gospel, testifying to God's grace, that's what they do. That's what missionaries have always done. And nothing has changed. That's our faith. So in verse 6 it tells us Paul and Barnabas flee to the cities of Lycaonia, which are Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach 
the gospel. So Lycaonia is the region and Lystra and Derby are the key cities there. So that's where they're going. And I should tell you that um, Bible uh, critics in the 19th century, the 1800s, you know there were, a lot of, there were a lot of attacks on the Bible at that particular time. They said that Luke was wrong. He got these cities mixed up or he made some kind of an error here because they said Paul couldn't flee from Iconium to Lycaonia because Iconium was in Lycaonia. That's what they said. There's a, there's a little error right there in the Bible. They said that was an error. But then about that time, that same time, Sir William Ramsey, who was a very famous uh, historian and a scholar of Roman history, he became really impressed with Luke and all the details he gives about places and names and all of that stuff. Kind of an endless knowledge of correct information, titles and details and all of that. And it was in Acts chapter 14 verse 6 that Ramsey uh, really had complete confidence in Luke as a historian because he found out that Iconium was indeed a Lycaonian city except it was one of those for a long time except between AD 37 and AD 72 it was attached to Phrygia. So to leave Iconium you would be going into that other area even though it used to belong to that area. So Luke was right on a very fine detailed point of geography and history there. So Ramsey concluded that Luke had to have been a very close observer of details who took great care to get things right which is exactly what Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel he said he investigated everything carefully so he had the facts right. So Lystra will be a city that Paul is going to visit several times in fact on his second missionary journey which we'll get to in some weeks ahead he's going to add to his team a a promising young man from Lystra named Timothy. That's where he's going to be. So Paul probably is going to meet Timothy or lead him to the Lord or be part of his life here. But um, this is his first visit to that city. And something happens that Luke just has to share because it's such a crazy story. So verse 8. In Lystra a man was was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He had been disabled from his mother's womb and had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke and Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had the faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice stand upright on your feet. And the man leapt up and began to walk. Now that's an amazing miracle. That's a Jesus level miracle. This is a man whose legs have never done anything. He's never, he has no muscular strength in his legs at all and he just gets up. So it's a spectacular miracle. This was a healing Um, you know there's healings and then there's healings this was a healing this was a big one Um, quite miraculous so when someone just gets up and walk who's never walked that's an incontrovertible demonstration of divine power so verse 11 when the crowds saw what Paul had done they raised their voice saying in the Laconian language the gods have become like men and come down to us and they began calling Barnabas Zeus And Paul Hermes since he was the chief speaker. So it's like oh no. So Hermes is the messenger of the gods. And so since Paul was doing most of the talking. They figured that was Paul. And um, 
Paul and Barnabas they just stand there totally confused. Why are they confused? Because the inhabitants of Lystra are so excited they're jabbering in their local language. They're not speaking in Greek which Paul and Barnabas would have understood. So they don't know what's going on and the, the people are singing and dancing and gathering flowers and pretty soon a, a priest of Zeus shows up with oxen that are all prepared in the pagan fashion for sacrifice. They're all decorated with flowers and stuff and they're gonna offer that those oxen to worship Barnabas because they think he's Zeus. So verse 13, moreover the priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Woo, why is he doing this? Well fortunately there's a Roman poet named Ovid. He's very famous if you know anything about Roman literature. But Ovid tells a myth, a, an ancient story about Zeus and Hermes, which in uh, Latin would be Jupiter and Mercury, and that they had visited Phrygia disguised as mortals. And everybody turned them away. They wouldn't help them, except this elderly couple named Philemon and Balkis, who lived on the Lycoonian border right there. So later a flood came and drowned everybody there except that couple because they didn't minister to Zeus and Hermes in human form. So there's a lesson there. If Zeus and Hermes show up in your city, don't ignore them. You'd better give them a lot of uh, praise and, and worship. So at some point and all that, so they think that because Paul did this miracle that that's who they are. They're, they are Zeus and Hermes. So Right in all this celebrating Paul and Barnabas finally get somebody to explain to them in their language what's going on. So verse 14 when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd. Now when a Jew tears his robes he grabs the seam and pulls them apart. When he does that he's horrified. Okay so this is a horrible unbelievable thing going on. The only thing more horrifying than idolatry is being the idol yourself. So and that they were treating them like they were God. So that's absolutely insane and they absolutely cannot allow that to go on. So they tear their clothes, they run out. Verse 15, men why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you preaching the good news to you to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. So Paul launches into his um, preaching right there using that opportunity. So they get this, they give this discourse on the nature of God and explain that they came to turn these folks from the very things that they're doing, worshiping false gods and they want to lead them to the true and living God. So that's actually pretty bold to say that at this particular moment when they're sort of in a frenzy of pagan worship to, to tell them that. I mean, I mean, listen, they brought the flower strewn oxen just for this occasion here, so they're, they're totally into it. But the crowd actually listens and an unquestioned miracle did occur after all, so they're paying attention. So the missionaries have their attention and they start preaching the gospel. So Paul affirms that he and Barnabas are what? Not gods, but mere mortals, men like them, right? No different than they are. And they've come with a purpose, and the purpose is to proclaim the true and living God who made all things. So here we get a pretty good idea of how Paul evangelized pure pagans. So these are not synagogue Gentiles. They, they don't know anything about the one God. Paul couldn't use the Old Testament or Jewish history. 
So he had to work with ideas they were familiar with and that would um, fit into God's plan. So he starts with the basics and that is that God lives. He's a living God and he's the creator of all things. There aren't a lot of little gods making different things it's, or some emanations or aeons as the Greeks believed. So there's one God. He's the living God. He made everything, the heavens and the earth and the sky and everything. So Paul continues in verse 16. In past generations... He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. So there's the idea of the fall. People are away from God. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So humans strayed from him, but he still gave his good gifts to them. So that's kind of a key point Paul's making. So pagans can enjoy the beauty of the world and uh, the fruitfulness of the earth and all of those good things. So uh, one brother has suggested that Paul had a three point outline for his sermon and we're kind of speculating here but there's a living God, there's a giving God and there's a forgiving God and that would be the gospel element but he hasn't got there yet because uh, he's doing everything he can but the setting and the confusion is making it hard for him to continue communicating if you look at verse 18 it says even by saying these things only with difficulty did they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to them so the people are still on a clamor and they're thinking they're Zeus and he's Zeus and Hermes and all of that so it's, there's kind of a funny aspect to that except it turns into an absolute nightmare. Jews from Iconium followed Paul and Barnabas all the way to Lystra. And here's why Luke emphasized the persecution in Iconium more than the church plant work because that was not a one-off situation. They're actually pursuing. Just like Paul when he was Saul in his zeal used to hunt down Christians wherever they went. These synagogue men from Iconium and they pick up men from Pisidian Antioch too and they're going to warn everybody else about these missionaries and have them killed if they can. So this is going to become a big problem. Paul and Barnabas will not have a clean slate anywhere in that region that they go. So they've successfully planted churches but they and the gospel message will be dogged by Jews from the region when they first arrived there at Pisidian Antioch and then at Iconium. So um, just in fact it's just the way Paul used to dog Christians. He followed them. So it's a serious problem. I mean Satan is always busy and he's active in stirring up opposition to the gospel. So Lystra is only about 20 miles from Iconium. So those men followed there. Men from Pisidian Antioch went to Iconium. They teamed up with people from Iconium that were against Paul and Barnabas. And together they came to Lystra to cause them problems. So verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds they won them over. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking that he was dead. So the Jews show up. They all agree that Paul and Barnabas are dangerous. Those Jews from Iconium and those Jews from Pisidian Antioch. And they follow them there. Make all kinds of trouble. They persuade the crowd who was wanting to worship Barnabas as Zeus. That they are in fact not gods. And they're not just mortals but they're malefactors. They're evil men with an evil purpose. They've already, they've already been kicked out of two cities. Don't fall for their tricks. They're evil. So I'm sure it was a rancorous and chaotic scene. We don't know any more details other than that. A lot of emotion obviously. But eventually they 
pick Paul probably the one doing the most of the talking and they actually stone him. Not long before he was Hermes right and now they're stoning him. Uh, Now he's a monster to be killed. So stoning is a horrible way to die. And here again um, Paul shares in the kind of suffering which he afflicted on other people in the days when he was the grand inquisitor for the chief priests in Jerusalem. His career as a persecutor began with the stoning of Stephen you'll remember in Acts chapter 8 so um, or chapter 7 I mean but he has um, we don't have any evidence that Paul was granted a heavenly vision like Stephen or anything positive happened like that he just is out and dragged out so what's kind of amazing here and this seems rather miraculous Paul did not die he doesn't even seem to be badly hurt which really shows a divine level of protection here he obviously was unconscious because they thought he was dead they dragged him out and threw him out outside of the city verse 20 while the disciples stood around him he got up and entered the city so it wasn't like he's just barely surviving oh give me a doctor he just gets up and walks back into town so God protected him in a rather wonderful way he must have been hurt in some way in fact in first second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 25 he mentions being stoned uh, along with all kinds of other difficulties he had in the mission field beatings and imprisonments and dangers of all kinds and he mentions that he was stoned one time so Paul will remind Timothy of what he endured before he met Timothy so in Paul's last letter second Timothy chapter 3 verse 10 he wrote now you followed my teaching conduct purpose faith patience love perseverance persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra that's those are the three cities we're talking about what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord rescued me So here they thought they'd stoned him to death and the Lord rescued him and many years later he's writing to Timothy and reminding him of those times. Of course Timothy wasn't a part of his team then so but he would have known this story. So you know that's ministry. I mean there's all kinds of joys and there's suffering that goes along with it as well. Sometimes physical suffering, brutal suffering. But the Lord rescued him and he's ready for travel right away because the next day they go out of town so he's not hurt badly. So God either sovereignly protected him or just healed him. Some people believe he may have raised him from the dead. That's possible too. It doesn't say that though. So whatever the case, Paul's ready to preach again. Verse 20, the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. So that's another town in that region. So now we start to come to some practical considerations regarding ministry and serving Jesus this sort of practical theology ideas what can we pick up from the last part of the chapter verse 21 through 28 well verse 21 says after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made a good number of disciples they returned to Lystra to Iconium and to Antioch what does Paul do they have our great successful ministry in Derby, and that was like 60 miles away so they weren't followed that far we don't have any indication that this uh, team of guys that messed them up in, in uh, Lystra followed them that far but they go back they go back to all of those cities where they were had so much trouble so they retrace their steps exactly back to danger why why would they do that well verse 22 tells you why they went back strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying 
it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Those are important messages. So they need to strengthen them, to encourage them to stay with Christ, and to remind them that it's not going to be easy. And Christians all over the world have experienced this and have to be told and reminded that to be, be a Christian, to be faithful to Jesus, can include a lot of suffering. So they're telling them that as they go back to those cities. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they build up the disciples. You know, it takes time for a new Christian to mature, to learn to apply his or her faith to life in the real world. That You don't just become, you know, you're a baby. You got to grow as a Christian. You, you're a new birth is just a, a little baby Christian, right? So you've got to learn to grow. We are all somewhere in that growing process. And that's what we're supposed to be about, growth. And uh, you know there's no isolated Christians in the New Testament. Christians are church people and faith is lived in a community together. So Paul and Barnabas are doing more than winning converts to Jesus. We see here that they are planting churches, Christian communities. We also learn in verse 23 about the structure of the church. There are no churches in the New Testament that do not have elders and elders in the plural, a plurality of elders. There is a leadership structure. It's obviously a very serious decision because to um, choosing these leaders because it says here that they prayed and fasted before they chose leaders for these congregations. So it's a huge uh, responsibility to shepherd God's flock. To actually bear that responsibility is a huge responsibility. And that's why they have such high standards in the New Testament for that position. First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. The qualifications to be an elder are very high. But these are still fairly young Christians which have only had a few months direct teaching. So they go, they, uh, when they come back through they're spending what time they can with them. And they're picking the men that are the most maturing and they pray and they fast about that and then they select them to oversee the congregation until they can come back on another time. So it's, it's very interesting that Peter who in, in many ways was the, the chief apostle and the hero of the whole first half of the book of Acts and in 1 Peter chapter 5 he, he addresses the church elders and he says to them um, he doesn't say Peter the apostle he says as your fellow elder. That's how he looked at his own self as a, as a fellow elder. So he was one of the shepherds of the flock. That is his great role and that is his key responsibility. And he challenges the elders quote to shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. Then um, this is 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So elders act as shepherds, making sure that the flock is fed and protected and nurtured to growth. The local church is essential to the Christian life. It's absolutely essential and qualified elders are essential for the local church. So the apostles are going back to these churches in Acts 14 to check on them and even the elders will be like I said pretty recent converts which makes 
things difficult. I mean, they only have a limited amount of time to mature in Christ to the point where they're already overseeing a flock. So over time, we're going to see in the Bible that Paul will seek to stay in places longer uh, for many months, even over a year to develop good leadership. Paul stayed in Corinth which was a pretty wicked city for 18 months. So that's a good amount of time to develop leadership. And when he went to Ephesus, which is one of the major cities in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, he stayed there for three years. And for a guy with itchy feet like Paul who always wants to take the gospel farther, that's a long time. But it was essential that he raise up good leaders. And we'll see in Acts chapter 20 that there was a good group of elders in Ephesus. So um, all of that's from that kind of work so important to develop godly leaders absolutely essential so when Paul does move on um, we learn even from those places often he leaves one of his team so he's been developing leaders in a team he'll leave them there so maybe Timothy or Titus or Luke or um, Silvanus or some of these other guys so they go back and check on the churches and continue with the leadership training if Paul can't be there personally so that's all coming Um, in in the development of the church here on the mission field so this is just the first missionary journey they're just finding their way okay the rest of Acts 14 is very telling about the journey uh, home to Antioch the the Antioch in Syria and that Antioch um, that's the church that fasted and prayed and sent them out as missionaries so um, even missionaries are or should be church based they should come from a church and that's another area of practical theology that we learn here verse 24 they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia when they had spoken the word in Perga oh you remember Perga is where they landed on the continent after they left Cyprus they went and they landed in Perga but they went straight up to Pisidia and Antioch they didn't stay but now on the way back they're going to Perga and they're going to preach there right so um Uh, They they spoke the word in Perga. Then they went down to Italia right on the coast and there they sailed to Antioch where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they arrived and gathered the church together they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's why when missionaries come we should all gather to hear what they have to say about the work that's going on where they are because that's the church the church is all built around the church and they spent a long time with the disciples so they stayed in that Antioch for quite a while so it's been a great trip it's a very successful trip and if you can kind of uh, excuse the various plots to kill them and the stoning incident in Lystra it was a wonderful trip Uh, just kind of leaving that part out but now they report what God is doing among the Gentiles and that leads to the first great controversy in Christianity it's coming to a head now this great division occurs in the church a doctrinal division about salvation it's about the most important thing do Gentiles have to follow Moses and become Jews in order to be saved that was the big question we've already addressed it before because it came up with Peter in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 but um, now it's going to bubble up to a, a big event It's going to all come to a head. How will that be solved? How are they going to solve that big theological question? Are the apostles just going to say, hey, we're apostles and we're telling you this is the way it's going to be? They do speak it, but that's not how it's done. They don't throw out their authority. They could have solved it that way, but guess who's going to decide this issue? The whole church. The whole church. So they're going to bring in all the elders 
and the apostles and the whole congregation to talk this through. The whole church led by the elders come together in the first great council in church history. And that's for next time. Acts chapter 15. Let's pray. Father your word is so valuable. Here we are 2,000 years later and we learn so much here of what it means to be a Christian your design for the church, for its leadership, our our purpose in the world. We thank you for so much that we find here in these texts. We love you. Help us to be strong and following in the footsteps of those faithful servants with regard to our church, our relationship to our church, and the leaders that we have in it. And Lord, we just uh, appreciate so much these wonderful things that Luke shares with us. And we ask you to bless until the next time in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any needs, please give us a call or contact us. We'd be happy to meet with you, pray with you, help out any way we can, okay? Next time.